Thank you, Marco and Talitha. That was beautiful. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 3 today of our series, Life Together. 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to be in the first nine verses of that book in just a minute. As I was preparing for the sermon this week, a rhyme kept running through my head. See if you know it too. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. I remember distinctly hearing and repeating this rhyme early in my childhood. And I pictured a beautiful garden with a girl cultivating soil for lovely tall plants. Perhaps once I thought, in the back of my mind I have a vague memory, what are cockle shells and silver bells? Why is con- what is contrary and why is Mary being that? Why are there pretty maids all in a row in her garden? And then my next thought must have been, wait, it's time for milk and cookies, gotta go. <laughs> now there are various theories about this poem and its origins. Some say that it is what it sounds like. A ditty about a girl and her garden written in the 18th century. Rhymes like this became popular to help children understand language, which then led to further bonding between parents and children. Others put forth that these poems were social commentary on the happenings of the day. Some believe the subject of this rhyme is Mary, who reigned England with her husband William. They had a great love for flowers. And if you go to Hampton Court Palace, you'll see some of the beauty described here because they lived there. They did not have children, so they poured themselves into making the gardens a thing of beauty. Still others say there is a much darker meaning, that the Mary described here could actually be the daughter of King Henry VIII, who was a devoted Catholic. Her garden was filled with Protestant martyrs. And this is about her torture of those who did not believe like she did. Now, the problem with this rhyme that I never really stopped to think about, even as an adult, is really how truly nonsensical it is. I mean, like, does a garden grow with shells? What What does being oppositional have anything to do with anything? But like other rhymes and sayings, sometimes we recite them and teach them to the next generation without stopping to wonder about them or ask about them. And in the vacuum of what something really means, our minds can adapt to what seems reasonable. So then we just keep saying it like it becomes truth to us. In the passage that we read today, Paul is saying that the church keeps singing the same song. But the patterns they keep repeating are nonsensical and they're stuck. Not only are they failing to move past where they've been, but they're not really even stopping to wonder why. And before they pass on their norm to the next generation, he wants them to look at a few things to see what true life in Christ is about. So let's read together. I will read 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not you are not of the flesh and behaving according Are you not? I'm sorry. Are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? 
For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. Lord, we ask that you would continue to give us your wisdom today through your word, which is living. Amen. You'll remember that the section of the letter that we have been studying is about what it means to have wisdom as contrasted with those who do not trust Christ and are foolish. Chapter 2, right before this, begins to introduce the role of the Holy Spirit in possessing wisdom. Paul's point is that no one can accept God's ways without the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one that brings understanding of who God is. Paul is trying to explain to them, he knows they have the Spirit of God. They're saved. They've received forgiveness. But still they struggle. They're Christians who are not understanding the light he came to offer them. There's something missing. And if they don't figure out the missing piece, they're not too far from becoming like the world around them which he does not want to happen. So the peace he wants to address with them is their spiritual progress. How does our garden grow? By that, I mean the garden of God's church. How do we grow as Christians? Because when God's people grow, they live out the call he has on their life, and the kingdom thrives as a result. When we live for Jesus, he bears bountiful fruit in and through our service, transforming us and bringing life to the world, increasing who comes to know him. I was thinking about things that grow because Paul talks about infants and gardens. You see, babies grow, seeds grow, and God is the one that causes all living things to flourish. As babies and seeds mature, they will look very different than how they started. What Paul talks about here is two ways that growth happens. In the first case, the people have to be willing to change on the inside. In the second case, people have to be willing to be used. If the Corinthians are listening, they'll begin to hear a different way to live than just the superficial way they've been doing on their own. So... Let's look at our first point. In verses 1 through 4, we see the first way Paul talks about growth. He says, we grow by the Spirit. We have to be willing to mature. Paul is holding up a mirror to the church, the people. They see themselves as spiritually wise. And Paul says, ah, no. He says, they are still infants who cannot handle the meat of God's truth and need to still be given milk. He was with them for a year and a half. It's been three years since he left, and still they're childish. Not childlike, childish. This is a serious assessment Paul is leveling at them. 
who likes to be told that they're immature, who likes to hear from their spiritual mentor that they are not grown up, that they should be further along on their journey. These are difficult words. Has anyone ever said something like this to you? How did you respond? It can be life-changing when someone who loves us is willing to say the hard words of truth. If we let it be that way. You see, it's a risk Paul is taking here. Because if they're not grown up, they may just huff off in their pain and not listen to what he's saying. Paul is the first to use the meat-milk metaphor other writers use it later because it's such a good description for those who have not intentionally decided to have a deeper relationship with God. They have the basics for what they think they need to know, but not much beyond that. I was thinking how spiritual babies let everyone around them worry about the big theological issues. They choose not to think very hard about things because they feel good where they are. And it's a little hard. They don't want hard. Perhaps they don't delve into what it means to work out their salvation in a complex and broken world. Their lives are marked by living for themselves more than loving others. That's normal when people first come to know God. But growth needs to happen. It needs to be part of their maturation process. I remember when Olivia was a baby... And a friend of I had coffee, and, and he said, hey, you know, how's it going, your new parents? And I said, oh, she's so cute. She's so adorable. I mean, literally, all Mark and I would do all day is just, like, stare at her. Just, like, hand her back and forth and just stare at her. We couldn't believe that God gave us this darling little baby. And my friend said, of course, what everyone says, well, you should enjoy it, you know, because it doesn't last very long. <laughs> And I said, oh, I just wish that she could stay a baby forever. (laughs) Silence. Pause. My friend looked very seriously at me and he said, no, you don't. (laughs) Not for you and not for her. You want her to change and to grow so that she can learn to live life on her own. So that she can go and be the person that God made her to be. You see, Paul's not very happy that his kids are failing to get past a certain stage. And how does he know they're not? Because they're still worldly. They're still acting as if Christ has not completely impacted the world by his coming. They're still acting in jealousy to one another, which is leading to quarreling. They're focusing in on what they can see and do and affect here, not reliving the reality of the faith not being connected to Christ in such a deep way in the heart of who they are, that they have a bigger vision. They see God's plan for their lives. They're fixating on what they can experience here, upset, upset when they don't get what they want. Paul tells them they have the spirit. They're just not living by the spirit. When we live by the Spirit, it means that He's in control. It means that we're in submission to Him. It means, like Jesus said, that we continue to lay down our lives daily. We surrender our sinful attitudes and behaviors that bring harm to others. We ask the Lord to help us let go of our selfish actions that lead only to our pleasure. We ask forgiveness for our impatience 
when things are not the way we want them to be. We ask God to help us when our focus is so here in the world that it blocks out God's very presence that he came to give us. We don't want to have a shallow awareness of who God is and all of his kingdom. We want to be able to make a difference and grow up in him. You see, the difference between people who are ready for meat and those who are bottle-fed is what Paul is talking about. He is hoping the Corinthians will see how he views them and it will bring awareness in such a way that they want to grow. Again, he's risking them being defensive and stubborn. But if he doesn't say it, then what happens? Then they stay where they are as babies. There's more to life in Christ than simply being forgiven and then living how we want. So what in our lives right now is not surrendered to God's spirit? What wall do you keep hitting that you're trying to overcome by yourselves but getting nowhere? Usually we can tell what those things are because it's where we hold on the tightest and where we have the least success. What part of our lives still looks infantile? These words of Paul are a mirror to us as well. We can gloss over them or we can allow God's spirit to show us where it is that he still wants to do work in us, where it is that he wants to bring growth. Like the Corinthians, we have to decide if we want to grow. In verses 5 through 9, Paul is telling us that we grow by God's hand when people are willing to do his work. He comes back around to their preoccupation that we've been talking about for a few weeks with gifted human leaders, which has led them to forget God's sovereignty in the process. Notice in verse 5 that Paul does not say, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? He uses the word what. What is Apollos? What is Paul? He's trying to emphasize for them the role that they're playing. This is not about who these leaders are but about what they've been gifted to do for the Lord. In verse 5, the word servant can be translated as slave or literally as wait servant. So it made me think, what if you went to a nice restaurant and the other diners there were fighting about which waitresses or waiters were the best? I mean, like out loud and in public, like really fighting about it. And every time you went to this restaurant, people were doing the same thing. Well, first of all, who would want to go there? So you'd probably stop going there. But secondly, the wait staff, however amazing, are not the point of what is happening there. (laughs) They take your order. They bring the food and drinks. They are a key part of the experience, but they don't cook. They don't own the place. They're important. They're brought in to do a job. They serve. You see, Paul is saying, Apollos and I are servants. That's all we are. And we were asked to help you, the church. Paul planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God is the one who brings the growth. This is a huge idea in the New Testament. That everyone works together. That everyone has a vital part in the process. That everyone needs one another. It doesn't do any good to water if no seed has been planted. And a seed will die if watering doesn't happen. 
And in God's economy, he has us work in mutual dependence and submission to one another, all under his direction, so he can bring growth. When we have grown a bit, he uses our gifts to help bring in the harvest that Jesus talked about. See, the Corinthians had lost sight of the fields that Jesus said were white for harvest, for people who were primed to be brought into the family of God, because they were focused on who was doing what and what was more important. You see, there's a danger in the church that we also have to keep in mind. We can become so insular, thinking about who is the greatest among us and thinking about what it is that we're doing or just being consumers when the greatest who is among us doesn't get elevated enough so that those in our lives who don't know him can really think about who he is so that he can reach them. When Paul reminds them that he and Apollos are merely servants, he is telling them that they are simply gifted by the Spirit to do what they did. One planted, one watered. They're not rivals. They're co-workers for the gospel. They are united in purpose to proclaim Christ. But it's God who brings the change of heart to people. It is his grace that we respond to. That is the work of the Spirit that no human can achieve, nor should anyone take credit for it. The brokenness of our humanity continues to work its way into the church. There's a problem when we publicly elevate some leaders over others. All of us can think of gifted leaders in the faith, people who've made significant strides for Jesus, moving the church to new places, missionaries and pastors and evangelists and authors, people who are really fruitful and faithful in their work. But what about the scores of saints throughout the ages who toiled in obscurity, who helped build the church to make it what it is today, a place of love and truth, a people of God? There are millions that we've never heard of who served in the way that the Lord asked and gave God glory. They were not highlighted but they were just as important as the people whose names that we know. The Corinthians had fallen into a trap that they needed a high-profile leader to feed them. And then they argued over who it was that did it best. And Paul is telling them, every person is needed and vital, and you need to grow up, and you need to become part of the work. Because God has work for all of us to do. His work continues, and he wants to make an impact through all of us. And if we're babies, we're not part of the work. All of us are necessary. No leader causes growth. However gifted or popular they are, the Lord makes it possible. Verse 9 brings it all together. He says, we are co-workers in God's service. The church belongs to God, says Paul, like a field. A fertile field, I think, where healthy life thrives and Everyone grows strong in him. The metaphor changes then to be a building, and we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the foundation that was laid to build the church. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? Sometimes in the church we talk about growth as an abstract without really knowing what we're saying. Maybe there are theories or catchphrases or things that we believe that causes growth that we rely on. And then I think growth is akin to cockle shells that doesn't really make sense to us, but somehow in our mind we've arranged our thinking to fit the paradigm. 
Here is what I get from Paul today. We don't have to guess or wonder how the church grows. It grows first by God's spirit and by people serving others with their gifts to advance the kingdom of God. We often think that church is growing when numbers are added to the body. And Paul says, no church can really grow unless people are mature and changing and being transformed into Christ's likeness. A church is healthy when its members are reaching out to help others learn by planting and by watering. Where are you helping spiritual life to grow? In your own walk, where are the places where you need to surrender so that growth can occur in your life and so the kingdom might thrive? Where are you working in tandem with the Lord and with other wait staff so that people can come to know Jesus as their Savior? This is what Christ calls us to, to make followers of him wherever we go. Let's pray.